Lucius Catiline, born of a noble family, had great vigor of both mind and body, but an evil and depraved nature. From an early age, he delighted in civil wars, bloodshed, pillage, and political dissension. And amid these, he spent his early manhood. His body could endure hunger, cold, and want of sleep to an incredible degree. His mind was reckless, cunning, adaptable, capable of any form of pretense or concealment. Covetous of others' possessions, he was prodigal of his own. He was intense in his passions. He possessed adequate eloquence, but too little discretion. His insatiable mind always craved the excessive, the incredible, the impossible. Greetings, friends. This is Alex Petkus, and you're listening to The Cost of Glory. Our mission is to retell the biographies of the great Greek and Roman heroes following the lead of Plutarch. But we do other things to support that goal as well. And this is the beginning of a mini-series about an anti-hero, or just a villain, depending on your perspective, and what Rome did with him. It's about Catiline. Lucius Sergius Catalina, a man who arguably came close to toppling the Republic. And I just read you a passage from a text we're going to talk about, Sallust's War with Catiline. Before we get into it, a quick reminder here. If you've been enjoying this show, please go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or if there's any other place to leave a review. That would be great too, Uh, but it really helps me out. It helps other people to discover this stuff. And if you haven't already subscribed to my newsletter, go to ancientlifecoach.com and do that as well. Now this mini-series is part of a mega-series, in fact. We just finished Agesilaus, the Spartan king, and so far we've been following Plutarch and going pair by pair, the Greeks and the Romans that he paired together, We've been kind of following his lead there, but I think getting into Plutarch's mind on the one hand is fascinating. Most people today, however, when they read Plutarch's lives, they end up grouping biographies by uh, men who lived around the same time together. And it kind of makes sense. You get a better picture of all sides of the story, all sides of the characters of the men involved. If you read biographies that are all Roman from a certain period or all Greek from a certain period, So I'm going to break the pattern that we've been following. This is going to be an unprecedented mega-series. Naturally, in the order that we've been going, the way that we've been telling the the stories, the the next biography that we would tell would be Pompey, who is paired with Agesilaus. And then after that, we would go on to another Greek. But you know, I thought about it, and it's hard to tell Pompey's story without telling Julius Caesar's story. But it's hard to tell either of their stories without telling the story of Crassus. So what I've decided to put together for you, for your listening enjoyment, is a new series, a new kind of series. I'm calling it Visions of Caesar. And in fact, this is the largest grouping of all Plutarch's biographies. It's the years where the lives have the greatest concentration. And that's during the life and times of Julius Caesar himself who is at least tied with Alexander as the most impactful man in Plutarch's collection. So I'm going to do the biographies of the greatest figures of the period 
that coincides not only with the life of Julius Caesar, but also with the fall of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Principate, the rule of one man, the emperor, Augustus Caesar. This will be seven biographies told in the order in which these men died. And here it is. Crassus, Pompey, Cato, Cato the Younger, Caesar, Cicero, Brutus, Mark Antony. And if you don't know those men, you'll get to know them soon enough. And I'll miss the Greeks for that time, but we'll be back to them soon enough as well. But today's episode is the first in a mini-series on Catiline. And Catiline is a sort of prequel to this mega-series on Caesar. It's a sort of prequel to a lot of the events that ended up breaking up the Republic. It's highlights from my research. I'm reading the primary sources to prepare here. But this is a story that really deserves to be told on its own. And it's about an extraordinary man, a villain, as, as I said, in the eyes of many. But it's also fascinating because it involves four of the seven key characters in Caesar's story, including Julius Caesar himself. And I think there are a lot of lessons in here for people trying to build a constituency or a movement, a mission, or a conspiracy. And there are a lot of lessons on how to orchestrate or fail, really, to orchestrate a coup. This is one of the most famous coup attempts in history. And it's also in the mind of some, it's a cautionary tale about the risks of genius and talent. Friedrich Nietzsche thought, in fact, that in almost every genius, there is a Catiline inside. And I'm going to read you a little passage. This is from Twilight of the Idols. It's pretty short here. This is paragraph 45, if you want to find it. The criminal and what is related to him. The criminal type is the type of the strong human being under unfavorable conditions, a strong human being made sick. What he lacks is the wilderness, a certain freer and more perilous nature and form of existence in which all that is attack and defense in the instinct of the strong human being comes into its own. His virtues have been excommunicated by society. The liveliest drives within him forthwith blend with the depressive emotions, with suspicion, fear, dishonor. And he goes on about how criminals are sort of, you know, great men with something missing. That's sort of like the societal conditions for their greatness isn't possible, or, or at least in their circumstances. And, and he ends the section here. He says, and I won't go into his whole theory. It's interesting. You should look it up. It's really outside our scope. But it's worth, it's worth uh, delving into at some point for you, I think. But here, here's the end of the passage. Almost every genius knows as one of the phases of his development the Catalinarian existence. In other words, a sort of existence like Catiline. A feeling of hatred, revengefulness, and revolt against everything which already is which is no longer becoming. Catiline, the antecedent form of every Caesar. So, so that's something to keep in mind. Catiline, the sort of paradigmatic political criminal in the Roman story. And 
Another reason that this is such an interesting story is because of the people who are telling it. The first is the one that we're going to focus on in this episode. It's Sallust. Sallust is one of the great classic historians of Rome, very much still worth reading today. He was a contemporary, sort of from the next generation after Catiline, very original thinker and an original stylist and a close observer of events and politics of his own time. Because Sallust was basically a, a, a young man while this was happening. He uh, was involved in politics. We'll learn more about him as we go, but that's Sallust. And the other famous teller of this story is Cicero, who was himself a consul of Rome when this all happened. He's really one of the protagonists in the story. And he delivered one of the most famous speeches in history, the speech against Catiline. And we're going to eventually read that together, highlights of it, at least. And for me, one of the most interesting things about this whole episode, me as a student of ancient persuasion, the art of rhetoric, that's uh, something that I did a lot of research on back when I was an academic. It's fascinating to me to see all the speeches made and the way that these leaders sway people to their causes and to just look at how that happened, the context of, of Roman oratory, persuasion by public speaking. And it's definitely something that Sallust is very interested in. He was a practitioner himself, and we'll talk more about it as we go. But let's get into it. Highlights of Sallust's War with Catiline. So Sallust begins his book with a long, almost apology for writing it, and he feels he has to explain himself. This is his first book, and he later wrote this account of the war with Jugurtha, where Marius is a big character, and Sulla. And he wrote a book later after that called The Histories, and that's a major source for the life of Sertorius, which is where maybe you first met him if you were listening to this podcast from the beginning. But by this time, by the time that he writes this, uh, this monograph, this war with Catiline, Sallust has been a tribune of the plebs. He's been uh, an ally of a commander under Julius Caesar's, um, for Julius Caesar, in the Civil War, he fought against the Pompeian forces in the Civil War in the 40s on the side of Caesar. And he's also been a praetor. So he's commanded men in battle and he's been involved in various intrigues. But at this point in his life, he's decided to retire from public life to write and here's how the, the book begins with his kind of apology here. All humans who are keen to surpass other animals had best strive with all their might not to pass through life without notice, like cattle, which nature has fashioned bent over and subservient to their stomachs. All our power, however, is situated in mind and body. We employ the mind to rule the body rather to serve. The one we have in common with the gods, the other with beasts. Accordingly, it seems to me more proper to seek renown with the sources of intellect rather than of physical strength. And since the life we enjoy is itself brief, to make memory of ourselves as lasting as possible. For the renown of riches and beauty is fleeting and fragile. Excellence is a shining and lasting possession. 
and he goes on here for a while in this vein, and he's, it's kind of a philosophical mood he's in at the beginning of the book. And he says, at first in human history, you know, it was uncertain which of these two was superior, mind versus body, uh, in war in particular. You know, uh, is it strength of arms, like literal physical strength, or is it strength of intelligence? But through experience, mankind learned, looking at the examples of Cyrus of Persia, the Spartans and the Athenians, it became clear in his opinion that mind is the superior force in war and kind of like history writing. History is also a product of the mind. And so he says it's a legitimate path to get glory and to get your name remembered, to have a you know a contribution of the mind, history. It's an interesting thought. And, and I think this worked for Sallust. But he's not saying that it's, just as glorious to write history as to be the actor in history, don't worry. And, and here he is again explaining himself. And in my view, although by no means equal renown attends the narrator of deeds and the one responsible for them, nevertheless the writing of history is an especially difficult task. First, because words must match the deeds recorded. Next, because such criticisms as you make of others' faults are thought by most readers to be uttered out of malice and envy. So he's talking about the difficulty of writing history, telling the story fairly. And this actually here is very much recalling words that are spoken in Thucydides, um, the Greek historian who wrote the Peloponnesian War. This is almost like a direct quote from the speech of Pericles in the, the funeral oration in Book Two of Thucydides if you've ever read that, but it's, Thucydides is a really important model for Sallust, a kind of pessimist historian. So I'm just going to continue with some Sallust quotes here. But when you recount, why it's difficult to write history, when you recount great merit and renown of good men, while everyone accepts with equanimity that which he thinks he could easily do himself, everything over and above he regards as false, tantamount to fiction. So, in other words, people don't believe things or they, they don't like to hear things that sort of praise people above their own status. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's why maybe some people don't like history? Have you ever met somebody who just doesn't really enjoy history? Is it because it makes them insecure? Is it because it makes them feel a twinge of envy when they hear stories of great deeds and that twinge of envy is unpleasant? When they hear about people doing great and legendary things or even just being really excellent and virtuous, daring great deeds. I don't know. That's, that's Sallust's perspective. And maybe he's got a point here. Uh, does this feeling that we have of resentment of, of great deeds of history often express itself in the skepticism about the character of the person about whom the story is being told? Something in us thinks, oh, but... You know, I bet Caesar was a cheater or an adulterer or dishonest or, you know, find an admirable person. And, you know, there's this kind of perspective of like, oh, but I bet he was just a, a bad guy. Some, you know, like he didn't pay his taxes or something. Or you know, most of the credit belongs to his team or luck or circumstances or whatever it was. You know, I think it's just his, it's, it, it's difficult to be indifferent to stories of great figures you either love them or you hate them. Maybe you want them to go away and stop shaming you. I don't know. That's, that's at least Salas' perspective. 
But anyway, we're so we're almost to the end of this little intro, and he tells us a little bit more about himself. And I think this is really key insight into the character of the man writing this account about Catiline. And he says, I myself as a very young man, like a great many, was initially carried along into politics by my inclination. And there I encountered many setbacks. For instead of modesty, instead of incorruptibility, instead of merit, there flourished shamelessness, bribery, and greed. Roman politics in his day was a very dirty business. And although my mind, a stranger to evil practices, rejected such conduct, nevertheless amid such rampant vices, my youthful weakness was seduced and held captive by the desire for advancement. And despite having no sympathy for the evil ways of the rest, nonetheless the craving for public office made me a victim of the same ill repute and jealousy as the rest. So he he felt he kind of got lumped in with the rest of the immoral herd, even though he personally felt that he was above the kind of corruption and jealousy of Roman politics. Accordingly, when my mind had found peace after many perilous misfortunes, and I had determined that I ought to pass the remainder of my life apart from public affairs, it was not my plan to waste my precious leisure in indolence and sloth, nor yet to spend my life devoting myself to the slavish enjoyments of turning the soil or hunting. So he's saying, I didn't want to be a, a man of leisure in the... And this is interesting, you know, you would think that the Romans have this very positive conception of agriculture. There's a famous story of this guy, Cincinnatus, from the days of yore and the glory days when before morals declined in the early Roman Republic, and he... You know, he was elected dictator to solve some problem of the state, and then he, he laid down his power, and he just wanted to go back to his farm and live a quiet life. But Sallust isn't really looking to that guy as a model either, at least not here. And he's, he's warming to his point here. Rather, I decided to return to the undertaking of a pursuit from which the harmful craving for advancement had held me back. That's... uh. The harmful craving for advancement is uh, ambitio mala, bad ambition. Not that he thinks all ambition is bad, but it was a bad ambition that held him back. Uh, so, and, and I decided to write up the deeds of the Roman people selectively according to whatever seemed to me worthy of record. All the more was this my intention because I possessed a mind free, importantly, from hope, fear, and partisanship. So he's saying, I can be objective about this stuff. I'm free from hope, fear, and partisanship. And there's some reason to be sus suspicious of the narrative that Sallust gives us about Catiline, but uh, we'll get to that later. Therefore, concerning the conspiracy of Catiline, I shall provide a brief account as truthfully as I can, for I regard that enterprise especially worthy of notice. Here's how important it is to him. Because of the novelty of the crime and the danger arising from it, but before I can begin my narrative, a few remarks must first be made concerning that man's character. So most of our sources on Catiline are give a perspective kind of like what Sallust is about to give here. And um, I'll give you another example real quick here from Plutarch. Here's what Plutarch says about Catiline. And this is from the life of Sulla. But that which Lucius Catiline did was thought to be most monstrous of all. So Catiline was a, 
like a henchman, a, an underling of Sulla. He's he's a young man, kind of like Crassus and Pompey, who are on Sulla's side after the Civil War is over and the proscriptions are going on, political purges. This man, namely Catiline, had killed his brother before the civil struggle was decided and now asked Sulla to proscribe the man as one still living. And he was proscribed. So he was posthumously condemned to death for crimes against the state, even though Catiline had just killed him. This is the story, at least. Then Catiline, returning this favor of Sulla's, killed a certain Marcus Marius, one of the opposite faction, and brought his head to Sulla as he was sitting in the forum. And then, going to the lustral water of Apollo, which was near, washed the blood off his hands. So you wonder if that really happened, or if that was just a story that circulated after Catiline's fall to condemn him further. But there are a lot of these stories that, that are in our sources, that, that Catiline was an, an unscrupulous fellow one way or another. And so right after the passage of Salus we read earlier, that's where he begins the, the story proper. And he begins with this narrative of Catiline's character that we read at the beginning, you know, he's from a noble family, but he's kind of depraved. He was involved in the civil wars at the beginning of his life, his adult life, and uh, his body could endure hunger and cold and want of sleep. So he's a very strong sort of nature, which is something that Nietzsche picked up too. He's, he's reckless, cunning, adaptable, intense in his passions. And for Sallust as well as for Nietzsche, he's, he's, a, he's an excellent specimen turned wrong. So going on here, Sallust gives the background, what he sees as the background of the story, and it, I, he's right. But the background of how this Catalinarian conspiracy came about has a lot to do with our old friend Sulla, Lucius Cornelius Sulla. And Sulla really comes up frequently in this book, again and again, and we'll see why, but here's Catiline's motivation, according to Sallust. After the tyranny of Lucius Sulla, Catiline had been assailed by the greatest passion for seizing control of the government, and he did not consider it at all important by what means he achieved his objective, provided he gained sovereignty for himself. So you remember after the, after the Civil War, between Sallust and, uh, sorry, between Sulla and the, the, the followers of Marius, Sulla wins and he establishes himself as the dictator, as the kind of, the, as the number one man in Rome. And Catiline looked at Sulla's example and he wanted to do that somehow, according to Sallust. His fierce spirit was goaded more and more every day by his lack of wealth and consciousness of his crimes, both of which he had been, both of which he had increased by the practices I have already mentioned. He was spurred on also by corrupt public morals, which were being exacerbated by two very destructive evils of an opposite character, extravagance and greed, lux luxuria and avaritia. So you know, luxury and avarice, the spending of a lot of money and the kind of craving and hoarding of money. So after this beginning, he goes on another long digression uh, that gives the background to the story 
in his view. And the, the background that he's most interested in is the moral background. And so he gives a kind of Roman history in a nutshell, uh, kind of a thumbnail sketch of Roman history, beginning with the mythic founding of the state, then the kings, the period of Rome's ruled by kings, and they were driven out, and that's when liberty came in, the republic, the republican system of government, which is a you know shared power system that they had. And he goes on about the virtues that won the Romans their empire, which included the fact that young men were too busy with military service to go partying around and carousing as they do in our day. And there, the, the, the wealth that was won through war and conquest and good government was spent on public things like beautifying temples, like glorifying the gods. And people were lavish with those sort of things and sparing and kind of humbled in their expenditures on their own private houses. And it's the inverse today. So there were virtues that won us the empire and won us... Um, Kind of supremacy in the Mediterranean, and but then we conquered. After after we conquered and conquered, we we finally defeated the Carthaginians, the greatest of all of our enemies, and that was sort of the beginning of the decline of Roman morals, in his opinion. And this is a common viewpoint. Sallust is one of the main proponents of it. That that basically after we defeated Carthage, we didn't have any worthy enemies in the Mediterranean anymore, and so our leisure and our wealth kind of became a curse. So he really attributes it to the, the supremacy over Carthage. There was also supremacy over the Greeks that he doesn't really mention here. But another event that kind of recapitulated all of that was actually the victory of Sulla over the East. And here's what he says about Sulla's, he's talking about Sulla's campaigns against Mithridates. And this is important to him. This is important background because a lot of Sulla's soldiers are still around, they're, they're a big kind of wild card in Roman politics around the time that Catiline is making his, his rise. So Catiline's conspiracy is really the years 64, 63, and a little bit of 62. And Sulla um, won the Civil War in 82. So less than 20 years after the Civil War is, uh, is this, all this stuff is going on. These soldiers, these veterans are still around. So but after Lucius Sulla had regained control of the state by arms and brought about bad results despite good beginnings, very kind of ambiguous comment there, all men began to rob and pillage. One coveted a house, another lands. The victors showed neither moderation nor restraint, but did shameful and cruel deeds against their fellow citizens. To this was added the fact that Lucius Sulla so as to secure the loyalty of his army, which he had led in Asia, had allowed it luxury and excessive license, contrary to our ancestral custom. Charming and pleasure-filled places had easily sapped the warlike spirit of his soldiers in their idle moments. So, really the campaign's east, east is typically associated with luxury in the Roman mind, the soldiers are getting soft over there. He's letting them carouse with the locals in their off-duty moments. And then when they get back, they're, they're bringing plunder and they're rich. And so they're building themselves houses over here. And they decide to indulge themselves instead of 
you know, continuing to train themselves in virtue. And so this goes on in a vein, in, in a similar vein for a little while, and just the general breakdown of Roman virtue and morals in Sallust's age. And I think you get the idea. We used to be better than this. Catiline is a symptom that exemplifies Roman sickness. And so he finally connects the dots here after listing many examples of recent moral depravity. He says, In so great and corrupt a body of citizens, Catiline gathered around himself throngs of all depraved and criminal sorts, like attendants, a thing which was very easy to do. For whatever lecher, glutton, or gambler had squandered his family's property in gaming, feasting, or lechery, anyone who had run up immense debt in order to buy his way out of a shameful deed or crime, further absolutely everyone convicted of murder or sacrilege, or fearing prosecution for their deeds, moreover those whose hand and tongue supported them by perjury or the murder of their fellow citizens, finally all who were hounded by depravity, poverty, or a guilty conscience, all these were Catiline's nearest and dearest friends. So, there you go. That's Sallust's view, and this is not an uncommon ancient view, by the way, of how, how revolutions generally start. Specifically, what sort of people get wrapped up in revolutionary, wealth-distributive sort of movements against the establishment. And maybe he's got a point here. So he's really blaming the... He's not blaming the, the poor. He's blaming the high-status people who would be the leaders of such a movement, who are formerly rich, formerly rich and honorable, and then there's a degeneration there. So he goes on about Catiline kind of exemplifying this and the people that he's gathering are, are of that sort. And Catiline is really good at getting the young men to join him. Always, yeah, you know, you have to have young men for a revolution, the hot-headed, energetic-spirited youth. And he, and he buys the young men prostitutes and dogs and horses, depending on what your taste is. Catiline can, can get you the Ferrari you want, that sort of thing, or may, maybe just the, the Mustang. But So Catiline himself also, as Sallust says, he, he spent his youth in debauchery. So he, he knows what it's like to be a young man of desires and the city's your oyster. And so um, there are these allegations. Actually, so Catiline was prosecuted for, um, what's the word? Defiling a vestal virgin. These are priestesses of uh, that keep an important temple, and they're virgins. And if you, you know, if you have relations with them, that can be punished by death. But he ends up being acquitted for that earlier in his career. And then Catiline ends up with a disreputable wife, according to Sallust. There are even allegations that he had his own son murdered to make room in his household for this new wife that you know it was to gratify her that he murdered his son and this is an allegation that Cicero brought up later in the in the trials and Sallust is writing 20 years later so he's kind of taking Cicero's word for it some some reason to be suspicious of that claim but 
So Salas speaks of the guilt driving on Catiline and, and this kind of shiftiness of character that I think is really memorable here, and I'll read it for you. Hence his pallid complexion, his haggard eyes, his gait, now fast, now slow. In short, madness was present in the features and expression of his face. Catiline, on the one hand, was actually a more upstanding citizen in, in respectable society than Sallust and Cicero like to portray him. Cicero, at one point, just a year before all this happened, considered defending him in a, in a trial and considered trying to get Catiline to support his candidacy for the consulship. So it, he wasn't like a completely persona non grata by any means before this all happened, which I think is one of the ways that he was able to get as far as he did. But Sallust does seem to be right in pointing out to the fact that he kind of made a, a, a career of gathering disreputable people around him. And, uh, and Salas does go on and talk about how he's always doing favors for lowlifes, getting people to produce false witnesses for pay and trials. So, you know, he has a shady reputa reputation on the side, but this is not that uncommon for otherwise respectable senatorial types to sort of dabble in the underworld of Rome. But Catiline is definitely dabbling in that underworld and, and building a net a patronage network of these people who have a need. You know, they're in a lot of debt. Uh, they've, they've got some kind of crime attached to their name and, and Catiline's the only one who will sort of take them up as clients, as, uh, as followers. And he has uses for people like that. He's that kind of guy. So Catiline, he's in the, in the lead up to this conspiracy. He's building up his power base, his support network. And then in 64 BC, he decides at last to make his move. He decides to run for consul. And Sallust explains that Catiline intentionally timed this all perfectly so that the biggest man in town was absent. And that is Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great. Pompey is, has left in 67 BC, so a few years earlier. And he's off fighting the remnants of the war with Mithridates, which is still going on uh, 20 years later, um, 15 years later. So, so Pompey's way off in the east, Rome's greatest commander and its most prominent politician, off in the east. And, and Pompey would really be a natural, he's sort of an anti-establishment figure. He's a kind of establishment challenger, not a, not a, not a, like far left radical, let's say, but he's a bit of a, an upstart, Pompey is. Um, and so, but a lot of the people that, that might be inclined to look to Pompey as the tormentor of the kind of established aristocracy might be more inclined to look to somebody like Catiline now that Pompey's out of town. And, and if Catiline tries something daring, Pompey will be too far away to stop him to do anything about it. So, there's a, there's a timing element for Catiline. That's when he decides to make his move for consul, to, to run for consul. There's a little digression here. There was an earlier conspiracy a few years before this that failed, and historians sort of doubt that this was so serious. 
though we won't get into that. But at the beginning of Catiline's conspiracy, he makes this speech that Sallust records. And I recently did a Twitter thread about this speech to kind of analyze it. We're taking Sallust's word on what Catiline said. The people who were present were all fellow conspirators. And Sallust says, nobody who wasn't a conspirator was present. So, you know, how did Sallust get this speech? Well, Sallust says, Catiline said something like this. He's going to give you a speech in a second. He's, he's not claiming to quote Catiline's exact words. This is a very common practice with ancient historians. Often they don't have transcripts of speeches. They have a few scattered references sometimes. They have to reconstruct what was plausibly said. But, you know, we'll see a little further that, you know, there, there were sources of information by which what happened among the conspirators eventually came to light. So, you know, there might have been a way for him to get information about what was said at this, at this event. But no doubt that the words themselves are Sallust's composition. Sallust himself, a, a speech maker, a, a talented writer. But I think it's still worth analyzing, looking at what Catiline says to his followers. All right. The speech of Catiline. He gathers together his conspirators. But what he first does, this is important, is he goes around to all of his associates and he starts telling them individually, hey, now's our chance to do something big. And he tests out the idea with them privately, individually, at first. You know, and this lets him kind of get feedback on his ideas. Win over also some key influencers in the group first before he makes a speech. Build some trust with the, with the key people that are going to sway the group. And then he begins his speech. And, and the, the point of his speech is he's trying to get them to all join his side and support him in, in whatever this endeavor is that he's planning that has something to do with him being consul. Here's how the speech begins. If I had not sufficiently observed your courage and loyalty, in vain would a favorable opportunity have presented itself. High hope and supremacy within our grasp would have been to no purpose. Nor would I, through reliance on fickle-minded cowards, be grasping at uncertainty in place of certainty. But because I have learned in many great critical situations that you are brave and faithful to me, for that reason my mind has ventured to begin a mighty and glorious enterprise. Also because I have perceived that you and I share a common view of the good and the bad. For to have the same desires and aversions, precisely that constitutes solid friendship. So first he reminds them of the friendship that they have, of their common experiences. This is an appeal to ethos, to character, in Aristotle's terms about how to persuade people. You, know, you, 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 you persuade most effectively when you persuade people of, of your character. And so they trust him. They know him just like he knows them. And he praises their character. He praises the qualities that it's going to require that's, that, that will be implied by them joining his side, namely bravery or manliness. The, the word is virtus. Maybe you might say virtue. And then loyalty. So he's saying, you guys are already courageous and loyal. I know you are. And that's powerful too. And then he goes on to paint a picture of how intolerable their current situation is. 
So you get in his words here why they're going to plan a coup. Ever since the state fell under the jurisdiction and sway of a few powerful men, it is always to them that kings and petty rulers are tributary. To them, nations and peoples pay taxes. All the rest of us, energetic, good, nobles as well as nobodies, have been a common herd, without influence, without prestige, subservient to those whom, if the state were healthy, we would be an object of dread. Accordingly, all influence, power, office, and wealth are in their hands, or wherever those individuals wish them to be. To us, they have left threats of prosecution, defeats in elections, convictions, and poverty. How much longer still will you put up with this, O bravest men? Is it not better to die valiantly than ignominiously to lose a wretched, inglorious life in which you end up being an object of derision in the eyes of some haughty person? I am reading the Loeb translation by Rolf and Ramsey, by the way. So he, he lays out this picture of wealth inequality, drastic wealth inequality. And this is true. Even among the nobles, there were the haves and have-nots, just huge rewards for being one of the, the tip-top politicians. And he says this is intolerable. He's making the case... You might think that the greatest risk is death. Death is definitely a risk. Catiline admits that, if we're going to do what, what I'm about to propose. But he says the greatest risk, rather, is not doing anything. Because the current status quo is intolerable. It's worse than death to not try to seize what is rightfully owed to us as men of daring and virtue. And you could see how this would be really appealing to otherwise reasonable Romans, you know, they're looking at their nobility, and a lot of these guys are not really fighting soldier citizens of the old Republican ideal. You know, they're, they're overweight, luxurious, they're politicians, not generals. And the Roman ideal of a politician is a general politician. A consul is, is a military officer above all. So it's a military aristocracy in the, in the glory days of the Republic. So, you know, he's kind of saying, we're, we're like the the old kind of Romans, the brave kind, the worthy kind. And that's very powerful rhetoric to a Roman. And he says, even though the you know death is a risk, well, it's not a, a big risk because we have a really good chance of success. The establishment that we're going to challenge is old and fat. We're young and hungry and determined. And he's trying to give them that take on the world startup mentality. And, uh, you know, they have the foreign dignitaries in their mansions. This is intolerable, etc., etc. So we have to act, he says. And I'm skipping a lot in this speech here. But he says, he closes, he says, Employ me as either commander or soldier. Neither my mind nor my body will fail you. These very enterprises, I hope, I shall carry out as consul together with you. Unless by chance my mind is self-deluded and you are more ready to be slaves than to rule so I think that this speech brings out how Catiline was, in fact, a very charismatic and magnetic guy. And he did actually have a lot of friends among the establishment. Not necessarily conspirators, but political allies. And in a better world, in a better world, he uh, would have been more like a Sulla in his earlier days, you know, 
Sulla was sort of a dissolute youth, but then he came into money and got serious. He fought in the war with Jugurtha. He fought serious foreign enemies. And Sulla managed to get wealthy, but Catiline seems in this point of his life, he's, you know, similarly from a fallen aristocratic line who hasn't had glory in a long time. Catiline is in a lot of debt. He's over-leveraged, you might say. He's needier. Um, and so he turns to the path that he turns. But, he, you know, he had these these really great noble qualities that were sort of perverted. And he was an, he was an excellent speaker. And Cicero, a number of years later, admits this. He's defending a client who was a protege for a while of, of uh, Catiline, Marcus Caelius. And he says, you know, a lot of us were fooled by Catiline. Catiline was a competent military leader. He was charismatic. All right, so after... He gives a speech. The conspirators ask him, well, then what? You know, he's, he hasn't really been explicit in this speech about what he's intending. You know, so he's kind of leaving a little room for it to bait them in, to get them to kind of commit by inquiring further. Salith says, although the act of disturbing the status quo seemed to them ample wages, it's a, Smashing the nobility is just, that would be fun of its own. Nevertheless, a great many of them called upon him to set forth what would be the terms of the war, what prizes they were to seek with arms, and what resources or prospects they had in any quarter. Thereupon, Catiline promised the cancellation of debts, a massacre of the wealthy, public offices, priesthoods, plunder, and all the other spoils that war and the wantonness of his of victors can offer. One of the key points there is the cancellation of debts. A lot of these guys are in debt, and, and debt is a big problem in this period. There's a real economic squeeze. The war against Mithridates is very it's, it's sucking up a lot of the money supply. There were years of civil war and displacement, and, and there's a credit crunch. So you can imagine interest rates are high, and... When that happens, you know, if you're in debt, it's not a nice place to be. And it was maybe never worse than this in the history of the Republic. And there's one alternate story that Sallust offers that is sort of famous. That before Catiline revealed to them his plans, he passed around a bowl of wine mixed with human blood and made them all swear an oath together. That is where the Latin word for conspiracy comes from. Coniuratio is a swearing of oaths together. So he makes them all drink from this blood of human, this bowl of human blood, which is, you know, sacrilegious and criminal. And, and so by, by their complicity in this crime, he, he sort of bound them to secrecy. And they issue a curse upon anybody who breaks the oath. And at that point, he reveals to them his, his true plans. And some think, according to Salas, some think that this is a this is a fabrication made up by friends of Cicero after the fact. But you know, Salas isn't sure here. So all this energy in the conspiracy it all depends on Catiline becoming consul at this point. And in a way, this is this speech and the oath, etc. It's kind of his motivational speech to his campaign team. They're just running for, he's just running for consul at this point. 
but it has big implications. Unfortunately for Catiline, they end up failing in the elections of 64. So the elections in a given year in the Roman calendar happen late summer, and then the consular terms begin January 1st of the next year. So the consular elections for 63 happen in 64. Makes sense. So in, in, in the elections for the consulate for 63, Catiline loses, and one man is a friend of his, one of the men who gets elected consul. It's a guy named Antonius, Antonius Hybrida, who is an uncle, actually, of Mark Antony. So you know, this guy is a son of an extremely prominent orator in the former generation. So Catiline is friends with Antonius Hybrida, actually. So he's, you know, this is a connection for him. He says at some point that um, Antonius might help us out to his conspirators. But the other consul elected for that year is Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero. And Sallust says here that the establishment were actually already worried about Catiline and because there's sort of a sense that he, whether or not there's a conspiracy going on, that doesn't seem to be apparent. But Catiline is definitely a, a rabble rouser, uh, an anti-establishment shady figure. They don't want him elected. The, the aristocratic nobility of Rome don't like the idea of Catiline being consul. So they support this other guy, Cicero. And Cicero, so far in his career, has been closely allied with Pompey. Pompey is more of a populist. He's an establishment challenger, as we discussed earlier. But Cicero really uses this crisis to present himself to the nobility to the optimates as, hey, I'm your man. I'm, I'll be your bulldog. I'll defend the established order. And this crisis kind of becomes his chance to establish himself with the establishment, with the conservatives. Uh, but Cicero is a new man. He's a, he's a provincial. And nobody in his family, the Romans call you a new man if you've never had a, an ancestor in the Senate before. And Cicero's in that position. And so they kind of reluctantly let this guy, Cicero, win the consular elections. You really can't hope to win at Rome without the support of some key establishment figures. So Cicero wins and foils Catiline's plan that depended on him becoming consul. But Catiline isn't deterred. This is actually his second failed attempt at the consulship, the highest office in Rome. There's two consuls again. Uh, so he isn't deterred. He starts raising money, borrowing money, and sending money and arms and supplies out to a friend of his who is an ex-centurion of Sulla. And there are a lot of these Sulla's soldiers, Sulla's former so soldiers who were, you know, successful as soldiers, and then they Sulla gave them land to live on and they ended up not being that great at being small town provincial gentry. And a lot of them ended up just dissipating their fortunes and getting into debt. And Cicero and Sallust both say this is a lot of the kind of core of Catiline supporters of these ex-Sulla soldiers who want another crack at getting rich again without having to work. Anyway, one of these guys is, is uh, Manlius. And he is in Faisalai, which is a uh, city basically 
on the outskirts of modern day Florence, Fiesole, but it's it's in Etruria, a, a few days journey away from Rome. Florence didn't exist back then. And this guy, Manlius, starts raising an army. He's getting the disaffected to take up weapons. So these ex-Sulla soldiers, maybe some opportunistic provincials, and they're starting to train for a conflict. This is 63 BC. And it's kind of amazing that this is going on right under the noses of the Roman Senate. It's, okay, it's a few days journey away, but you know, I guess it's easier to keep a secret in those days. You could find some secluded wooded valley and control entry and exit from that valley. And, you know, you might get several thousand men armed and dangerous and trained without many people knowing. So Catiline is doing this on the side, Salus says, and then he starts campaigning for consul again. This time it's late summer again, 63 BC, and the consular elections happen. And meanwhile, Cicero has gotten word of what's going on, a conspiracy happening. And how this happens is kind of a lesson for if you're trying to plot something risky that you have to be careful who you involve. Salus explains. Now in that conspiracy was Quintus Curius, a man of no mean birth, but guilty of many shameful crimes whom the censors had expelled from the Senate because of his immorality. This man was no less irresponsible than he was reckless. He had no concern at all about keeping secret what he had heard or concealing even his own misdeeds, nor in short for what he did or said. He had a long-standing illicit love affair with Fulvia. This kind of becomes key. Fulvia, a woman of high birth, and when he began to lose favor with her because of poverty, this compelled him to be less lavish, and he suddenly fell to boasting and began to promise her heaven and earth. You know, money's not coming now, babe, but you just wait. You just wait. We're going to be super rich. She's like, what? And he, sometimes he began to threaten her with steel if she did not bow to his will. Yikes. In brief, he, behave, he behaved more boldly than he had been accustomed to. But Fulvia, when she learned the cause of Curious's unusual behavior, she gets him to admit, I guess, that they're planning to overthrow the state. She did not keep hidden such a peril to her country, but withholding the name of her source, she told a great many people what she had heard about Catiline's conspiracy on various occasions. So, isn't this often how secrets get out? Well, Fulvia starts telling Cicero about these schemes. Cicero has a mole. Cicero starts to be able to anticipate Catiline's moves. And around this time, according to Sallust, Catiline decides to try to get rid of Cicero. And on the day of election for the next year's consuls, Cicero comes famously to the election grounds because the consuls of the current year, are they oversee the election, so he has to be there. So he, he comes to the election grounds wearing a breastplate underneath his toga, but, you know, kind of letting it, the toga kind of come aside so you can everybody can see the breastplate. He's, he's being a little ostentatious about it. And he's trying to make the statement, his life is at risk. So he's been kind of provoking Catiline off and on that year, 
suspecting something's going on. And so he he's accusing Catiline of basically trying to murder him on the day of voting because Cicero has, has thwarted Catiline by becoming elected consul in the first place. And then also sort of important background to this, this guy Antonius, Catiline's friend, who's a, a well-connected from a good family, but maybe kind of you know susceptible to populism, the other consul, I mean, Antonius, Cicero has persuaded Antonius to distance himself from Catiline, to not support Catiline's bid for consulship this round. And he's made a trade with him. They traded provincial commands. Basically, Cicero you know, made, sacrificed his own very, very lucrative provincial command. You know, the consuls, after they end their office, they go off and they become governors. And if you get a good province like Macedonia, which is basically Greece, then you can make a lot of money. And it could be really, really easy. And Cicero got Macedonia, and he's like, hey, I, you got Cisalpine Gaul, which is a crappy province, and you're not going to make any money here. Let's trade on condition that you do not support Catiline's bid for consulship. And so Antonius is like, yeah, that's fine. So, so Catiline kind of came up short in this election, and that was his motivation, allegedly, for trying to murder Cicero on the day of the consular election. So whether or not he would have actually tried to have Cicero murdered, I mean, it's not its not inconceivable. It's, it's a very crowded kind of place. It's easy to sort of hide who actually stabbed who in that kind of situation if a riot were to break out. But anyway, the upshot of this is Catiline loses again in this election. And the result of all of this is... Cicero becomes Catiline's nemesis in a way. So there's possible room for skepticism that Cicero actually, what, that his life was actually threatened at the consular elections on that day with the breastplate and all that, you know, histrionics. But, but after this, it gets serious. Catiline has lost his third election to the consulship He's got no chance now of becoming consul and doing whatever he was going to do legitimately or quasi-legitimately with the authority of consul. And he's also lost the support of the consul that he thought was his friend, this guy Antonius. And the incoming consuls for 62, beginning in January 1st, these guys are solid establishment, trustworthy men for the Senate. So he has no hope there from the from the authorities to collude with him. And this is when the, he and the conspirators really just start to decide it's time to burn this place down. And they actually get ready to set fires to part of the cities of various parts of the city to spread chaos. And they also decide to launch a plot to murder Cicero. See, he's Catiline sending more and more money out to his supporters to go Send, send money to the army. These are the guys out in, in Tuscany and Etruria. This army that he's going to, I guess, march on Rome with. And he wants to leave to go join them. But he tells them, he sends a letter to them, and he says, I've got some business to take care of first. And I'll read you this passage from Sallust about what happens. Accordingly, while the rest were terrified and hesitant... Gaius Cornelius, a Roman knight, pledged his services, and with him Lucius Vargenteus, a senator, and they resolved, these are conspirators, they resolved that very night 
to enter Cicero's house a little later with armed men, as if to pay their respects and to stab the unsuspecting victim unexpectedly in his own home. When Curious realized, this is the the mole, remember, the dissolute mole with the girlfriend. When Curious realized how great a danger threatened the consul, he quickly reported to Cicero through Fulvia the treachery that was being set in motion. So, so at this point, at least, Cicero has a real mole with the conspirators. It's not just the girlfriend, but the Curious doesn't want Cicero to get killed. Hence, the callers were turned away from the door. So Cicero turns that he gets word of this plot to kill him, and they he he um, he has guards there. He's beefed up his his personal guard at his home. He turns them away at the door. So close call there for Cicero. After this, Cicero persuades the Senate to pass the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, which is a formula of uh, basically martial law. It's uh, the Senate urges the consuls to take care lest any detriment come to the Republic. It's basically like the Senate ordering the consuls do whatever it takes to get us out of this danger. This is a this is martial law, basically, and the consuls are in charge. And the consul Cicero is getting vague reports now of this army being raised. There are rumors of threats to the Republic in the city. He's getting reports of this threat of arson and Cicero wants to nail Catiline but he can't yet he just doesn't have any hard evidence and the Senate is very reluctant to act you know in the extreme and and in the absence of like really damning evidence to arrest Catiline and prosecute him and so it's an environment of kind of the fog of war but the Senate is starting to get really nervous, and they declare all of these rewards for information leading to the apprehension of the conspirators. They're promising freedom to slaves, prizes of various sorts, you know, lots and lots of money. And they post watchmen throughout the city to uh, head off the possibility of arson. And I think the way that Salas describes the mood here is brilliant. And I want to read you this sequence of events that he, as he describes it, because he tells it really masterfully. And this is really the climax of the first half of the story of the conspiracy. So here he is. These measures struck the community with terror, and the aspect of the city was changed. In place of extreme gaiety and frivolity, the fruit of long-continued peace, suddenly gloom descended on all. They hurried about, did not quite trust any place or any person, were neither waging war nor in possession of peace. They measured the perils each by his own fear. The women, too, who experienced the terror of war, one unfamiliar to them owing to the magnitude of the nation, beat their breasts, raised suppliant hands to heaven, expressed pity for their little children, kept asking about everything, trembled at every rumor eagerly grasped at every scrap of information and throwing aside haughtiness and self-indulgence, they despaired of themselves and of their native land. So a mood of chaos and terror in the city. This is in October, early November. But Catiline's pitiless heart kept setting in motion these same projects. Even though defenses were being made ready, and he himself had been arraigned by Lucius Paulus under the Plautian law. This is a law that covers acts of violence, such as the unlawful use of weapons within the city limits. So he's being 
arraigned on charges, but it doesn't really come to anything. Finally, in order to conceal his designs or to clear himself, as though he had been provoked by abuse, Catiline came into the Senate. So Catiline comes to meet the Senate face to face, thinking that he's going to dispel the rumors. Then the consul, Marcus Tullius, either fearing his presence or roused by indignation, delivered a brilliant speech of great service to the state, which he later circulated in written form. When Cicero took his seat, Catiline, prepared as he was to conceal all his guilt, with downcast eyes and pleading voice, began to beg the senators not to believe rashly anything concerning him. He was sprung from such a family, he said, and had so ordered his life from youth up that he had nothing but the best prospects. They must not suppose that he, a patrician, who, like his forefathers, had rendered a great many good services to the commons of Rome, had any need for the overthrow of the government. As though the savior of Rome was Marcus Tullius, a resident alien in the city of Rome. So he says, you know, I'm a good noble. Why would I overthrow the state that, that I've done so much to uphold and support? Whereas you, you people think that this guy Marcus Tullius, that's Cicero, do you think this, this guy, this inquilinus, is the Latin that he uses, this, uh, this lodger, this rent-paying resident alien in the city of Rome, because Marcus Tullius Cicero is from Arpinum, which is halfway to Naples. You know, he's playing that, I'm an insider, this is an outsider card. But next, when he tried to add other insults on top of this, Everyone raised an uproar, calling him a traitor and an assassin. And then in a rage, he said, Inasmuch as I have been cornered and am being driven to desperation by my enemies, I shall put out the fire besetting me with demolition. So that's kind of, that's sort of a scary sounding threat that he makes there. And he's referring to this idea of like if the city is on fire, then you demolish the buildings that are in the path of the fire so it doesn't leap from one building to another and stops the spread of the fire. So not clear what that's supposed to mean, but it sounds scary. Then he dashed out of the Senate to his house, there turning over in his mind many thoughts, given the fact that his plots against the consul were making no progress, and he perceived that the city had been fortified against arson by watchmen, Believing the best course of action was to increase the size of his army and to secure in advance before the legions were enrolled, that is, like before the legitimate government was able to enroll legions to defend themselves against him, that many things which would be of use in war he should obtain, he set out for camp, for the camp of Manlius with a few companions in the dead of night. He's leaving a few people behind here. However, he commissioned Cethegus, Cathegus, I think that's how you say it, Cathegus, Lentulus, and others whose reckless daring he knew to be ready for anything to bolster the strength of their faction by whatever means they could and hasten along the plots against the consul to make ready murder, arson, and other deeds of war. As for himself, he would, he said, shortly draw near to the city with a large army. 
So to summarize what happened there, Cicero delivers a speech in the Senate against Catiline. And Catiline is taken aback. You know, he showed up that day expecting to clear his name, but Cicero was ready for him. Cicero overwhelms him. And there's a famous painting, a couple of famous paintings, but one in particular where Cicero is addressing the Senate and Catiline is sitting all apart, all alone, and Cicero is kind of orating against him. And Catiline's looking down. And it's based on this passage here and also one in Plutarch. Um, so he's left, the senators all get up when Catiline sits down and they move to the other side of the building. So after that key, key speech, Catiline leaves the city. Cicero has the Senate completely on his side. This is why Catiline leaves. Cicero is really already won. Once he makes this speech in the Senate that day, Catiline is getting shouted down. So the speech is really what did it for Cicero that day in the Senate. And so Catiline leaves. Look at what that speech accomplished. And you know what? We have that speech. It's Cicero's first Catilinarian oration, one of the great famous speeches of history. And I want to read that speech together with you and give you the highlights of it next time. So we'll leave it there today. It's kind of a cliffhanger, I know. Catiline is left to go join his forces in Etruria. There's still conspirators left in the city. And the, the fate of Rome is still very much in jeopardy here. So we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already subscribed to our newsletter, go to ancientlifecoach.com. Do that. If you like this, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This really helps us out, helps other people find this stuff and improve their lives with it, I hope. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.